Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. NetSuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, We'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Capital Allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Capital Allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meeting, Chris Duvos interviews Bill Trenchard. Chris was an early guest on Capital Allocators and is the founder of Ahoy Capital, a boutique fund of funds focused on early stage venture. Bill is a partner at First Round Capital, which focuses on seed stage investing in technology companies. 
He'll join First Round after starting five companies and led First Round's investments in Uber, Flexport, and Lending Home. Before they get going, Chris and I discuss his initial discovery of First Round, the evolution of the firm, and his ability to get capacity in what has become a first-tier, oversubscribed venture capital firm. Chris, great to see you, bud. <laughs> Likewise, man. It's been too long, my friend. So I know you've known First Round for a long time, but would love to hear how you first came across them. It was a wild time. We're talking like 2003, 2004. I was kind of a young buck at Princeton's endowment then. And I was like, hey, it feels like something's going on in entrepreneurial finance. And we were post.com bust. Funds had gotten really big and then had shrunk. But I kept hearing from entrepreneurs that the game was like changing radically. The way that everybody did due diligence, they run up and down Sand Hill Road and they ask their favorite investors, who's good today? And you just get like warmed over conventional wisdom because everybody's shilling their buddies. So I started going to see entrepreneurs and I'd show up at these places when I was out in San Francisco with a couple of cases of beer and pass them around to the team and we'd sit around and jibber jabber. And I said, well, you know, is anybody doing it different? And when I was with the video head guys, they said, well, look, we've got three investors. We got August Capital, who was great. They loved August, a more traditional firm. Mavron out of Seattle. And these two guys found us and these two Philly guys, Josh Koppelman and Howard Morgan. And they're running this little fund called First Round. It's kind of Josh's and Howard's money, I think they said. And they really get what we do. And it turns out that I've by that point gone to TIFF in early 2004. And I said, wow, this is really cool because first round's right around the corner from me in Conshock in Pennsylvania. And I started sitting down with Josh Kay and Josh started articulating a vision for a new kind of venture firm. He said, look, with first round, what we're trying to do is turn venture on its head. The typical venture firm runs like a hub and spoke model where everything's going through partners. We have the technology. What if we could create kind of a peer-to-peer dynamic where the entrepreneurs are the network and the entrepreneurs are helping each other and you remove the bottleneck of the venture capitalist? And by creating that community of entrepreneurs who could help each other with different tech-enabled stuff that the first round guys had built, you could potentially create something really powerful. Powerful. In 2004, it was just a vision. But man, it's been fun to watch them grow and evolve over the past 17 years. So how have you thought about that evolution? A big question I have is, in venture, what is it that's durable about a firm? The number of firms that have failed in generation or transition outnumbers by orders of magnitude the numbers of firms that have had successful generational transitions. And so I said, look, Josh is a force of nature. Josh is going to die with his first round boots on. But as Rob and Chris started downshifting a little bit to partner from managing partner, they were bringing on new folks and Finn Barnes is there. But Bill is one of the first hires and they've brought on since Haley Barna and then Todd Jackson and now Meka Sonier. And what I love about it is there's such a strong culture because a lot of venture firms are set up as tennis teams where everybody's playing their own match. Different things work for different firms. But what works really well at first round is Josh, he's not really an investor. He's a fund entrepreneur. And he's run that place as a startup. And now a company that's mature. I mean, there's 75 people working on platform initiatives, investing, content production, etc. And there's a very strong culture because Josh knows that the CEO sets the tone. And even though they're equals as partners, there's still very much this Josh-driven things ethos that he brings from his serial entrepreneur career. And so whenever they hire people, they're like culture carriers. And so that's been great. And actually, one thing that sometimes 
happens though is you get social reproduction and diversity and inclusion is a really big thing in venture. And so in hiring Meka, we need to find somebody that's way outside of our networks. They went through a whole bunch of stuff, which Bill described in our discussion, to really stretch their perspective. And they found Meka, who's unbelievable background, as with anybody, we'll see how he turns out as an investor, but boy, he's got some great tools. So one more question. You started as the first institutional investor in first round. Over the years, they've become one of those desired, massively oversubscribed funds. Really curious, your experience getting capacity when the likes of the Yales and MITs and Princeton are there and wanting as much as they can get. First round has been historically a very size disciplined firm, whereas a lot of their peers have now grown to managing in each fund many, many hundreds of millions of dollars. They've still stayed pretty much only one and a half to two times their original size. During that time, they've admitted a couple of new investors. But I was lucky in that being an early investor, we took a pretty big stake and even though I've moved a couple of times, I've been fortunate that that's kind of come with me. And so we're today about where we were as a percentage of the fund in 2008 when they raised FRC2. But it's that's required a lot of begging and cajoling and, and arm twisting and all that stuff. Competition for allocation is the LP world looks really collegial, but boy, the sharp elbows can come out then. Yeah. All right, Chris. Well, Thanks for bringing them in. Thanks for bringing in the conversation with Bill. Love it. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being on, Bill. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me, Chris. Awesome. You know, whenever I sit down with somebody, I'm reminded of this old Calvin and Hobbes cartoon that I probably saw at some point in the mid-80s. And it was one of the Sunday Calvin and Hobbes, which was a full page, and it was gloriously illustrated. And it's Calvin and Hobbes, the insouciant boy and his imaginary tiger walking through the forest on a crisp fall day with leaves everywhere, browns and ambers and golds. And they just walk for several panels. And in the last panel, Calvin turns to Hobbes and he says, has it ever occurred to you that the entirety of human history has conspired to get us in this place together at this time? Now, what about you, Bill? Tell me how you got excited about tech and tell me about your journey to finding us together walking on this beautiful fall day. Thank you, Chris. Really excited to be here. I was really lucky. I was a child of the 80s at a time when technology was coming up and really starting to hit its mainstream with consumers and really starting to go from these personal, you know, we were starting to get personal computers. We're going from these big room size computers down to things that you could have on your desk. And it was the era of Steve Jobs and Wozniak in the early days of Apple. I was only five years old when the Apple II came out. But I was very lucky that I had a father who worked in tech. He worked in what was then called MIS, Management Information Systems, as now would be called the IT department. And he ran a group at Sony Electronics, doubly good for me because Sony was also a fantastic product company in the 80s, putting out some of the best tech products of the era for consumers. But he also got access to all these great computers. And so what got me hooked early was exposure through my dad and just having my father being in the industry and bringing home these great products. He got to borrow from work, you know, whether it was the latest Mac computer or it was some Sony product like a Sony Walkman or video camera. There was always something coming home. And in addition to that, he also knew I loved to devour information about tech and he would bring home Mac Week, PC Week, Mac World, Mac user, all these magazines and periodicals. That was the way you got information. There was no internet back then. There's all the news about tech was 
in these weekly and monthly periodicals, and I would just pour through them. And it had a major impact on me. I fell in love with tech at a very young age, and I had unusual access just because of my dad's job to really cool devices and cool tech along the way and saw some, some ideas that were ahead of their time, like the first general magic device, the Magic Link, which was foundational to so many things that happened later with mobile devices. In any career, I think there's a tremendous amount of value in going deep on something. And often you do that with the things that you really fall in love with. And the advantages of compounding knowledge over time, for me, I was just super lucky to have that start early in my career. You know, it's funny that you mentioned back in the day, early apples and all the mags and everything, you know, my first rig was a Commodore 64. And I remember putting Flight Simulator in and waiting two minutes and 40 seconds for that thing to load. So you went to Cornell and Cornell was like a hotbed of cool stuff going on in that era, especially. It was. It was one of the first national supercomputing centers, one of the few. And I had a legendary computer science department. That's what I went there to go study originally. You know, even before Cornell, I was lucky that I got exposure to a local founder who started a company. And I did a lot of hacking for him as a kid. What literally, he hired me when I was 13 years old. <laughs> and so that was the beginning of my career, really, was when I was starting to build databases and apps for this guy that was in the town I grew up in, I grew up in a town called Larchmont in Westchester County. And he was building these businesses. So that gave me this early exposure to entrepreneurship as well, and what it was like to really own one's own career and destiny, which was also very lucky for me that I got that exposure at such a young age. Are there still things from that era that stick with you that you lean back across the decades and think about? The thing that I learned early on from looking at all those products, and I think I got a sense of, Steve Jobs had this famous saying about Microsoft. He said, they just have no taste. They just got no taste. Like their products are just not wonderful. They were obviously a behemoth in the 90s and in the early aughts, but they just had no taste. And so I think what I learned, or at least got a sense through exposure to so many different products early on was taste. What made a Apple product really great? What made a Sony product at that time really great? I was very lucky to be around two of the best consumer product electronics companies at the time. And so that's probably what holds over the most for me from my early upbringing. And I did go to Cornell. I was very lucky to have an amazing experience there. I started my first company when I was an undergrad as a sophomore. It was right in the mid-90s when Netscape was getting going. It was the early, early days of the internet, like Netscape Communicator just had launched. And I originally started this concept kind of like a city search thing, but ultimately that didn't go anywhere. I kind of pivoted into being a consulting shop. And one of my early customers, my biggest customer was for a while was Josh Koppelman when he was doing his company, Infonautics. Josh is, of course, the founder of First Round. But back then he was doing another company he was co-founder of. He started out of Wharton undergrad program. He started a company called Infonautics and he was working on that. And so he would send all these skunkworks projects up to me and I started doing that. So this was the beginning of our very long relationship, which has stretched over 26 years now. So you were the brains of the operation. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know about that. But uh, Josh would have lots of ideas. As you know, Josh really well. He just, he's an idea machine and he would get frustrated because he had limited resources internally. So he'd bring a lot of airbrained ideas to these college kids up at Cornell to build. And that's what we did. We created a lot of cool little products for him over the years. And that was a lot of fun. The other lesson from that era was, I think, relationships compound. And the best businesses compound, but the best relationships compound too. Here I have a career arc with him that's really stretched for 26 years now. That goes back to when I was really just a kid. When I was 19 years old. That's really cool. It's very cool to have that longevity with one person and see how they evolve and how you evolve and how you look at the world differently over time. It's a great point too, because 
in the tech world broadly, but particularly in venture, everything, if you think about it from a game theory perspective, everything's a multi-period interaction. But in the venture world, you have these resonating relationships that go on and on, and they become particularly important because the evaluation horizons are so long, and those long relationships can pay real dividends. Absolutely. With Josh uh, in particular, he's older than I am and was always a mentor and advisor. And some of the best advice I got was from him over the years. Matter of fact, when I started my next company, he was my key advisor. So I started, after I was building products for him from all, I'm like, I'm going to go build a product I want to go build. Like I want to build something cool. And so me and a bunch of the team that I had assembled for these consulting projects, we went off and built our first company, product company, which was doing web calendars in the early days of web calendars in 1998, 1999. And um, we were right out of school and we just sold that to Microsoft. And that's really what brought me to Silicon Valley was that move. And that's what started the rest of the career. What was that like transitioning from consulting and doing one-off projects to building a company? That must have been quite an experience and something that was really product-focused. I bet you picked up a lot of things then that you put into play today. It was fantastic fun because you were figuring it out as you went. And I was learning how to be a CEO as I went, as a lot of the founders I advise today are having to do. And a lot of them you know, were a little, little older than I was at that time. The key thing for us was... One was just putting together a great team that had an incredible product sense, even though at the time no one had really built a web-based calendar. Outlook was our model at the time, which was desktop software. And so how do you do that? And, how do you, and so I had was very lucky to just have an incredibly talented team. It was almost a benefit that we were all naive and hadn't had a bunch of experience before because we just started from a first principles basis. Andre Black was leading design and he's fantastic. He's gone on to do amazing things in his career. Mike Torres was leading product. He now leads Kindle at Amazon. I mean, these people have gone on to fantastic things in their career. Dean Glasgow, who was helping me run the company, also fantastic at product. He's now running a lot of the entertainment products at Facebook. We were just figuring it out as we went, but we all had a passion for products. And we would talk about the cool products that were in our life. And we talk about the things that we're really excited about. At the time, it was the handheld product was the Palm Pilot, which is kind of really crazy to think that that was the state of the art at the time. But we would talk about building apps for that. And we'd be excited about some of the cool things that were happening in mobile. And then Wi-Fi was just happening back then. And so this was the dawn of so many things at once. And that was the biggest thing was like learning what made for a great product from these other companies, that concept of taste. And really, it was a consumer product. So how do we connect with our consumers and really build something that was going to be 10x better than a desktop-based calendar? So that was a lot of learning, and it was a ton of fun. We had a great time doing it. So Josh talks a lot about how you want to let your players make fouls. You don't want them to foul out, but if you go through a whole basketball game without fouling once, you're not playing hard enough. Do any fouls from that era maybe stand out that have where, you know, you kind of face palmed, but you're like, wow, you know, that was a great learning opportunity. I mean, <laughs> Chris, the list is incredibly long. <laughs> I, I would say the, the biggest thing for me was I had never been a CEO. And the sports I did as a kid were more individual-based sports. I was a runner growing up, so I ran cross-country. And so I had to learn how to really lead a team. A lot of the mistakes I made were around that, which was how do you be a strong leader? How do you inspire people? How do you get people to do their best work? How do you avoid a lot of the problems of a company that as it's growing, you become, you can get the negative cultural effects. How do you avoid those? Uh, how do you make sure that you have open and transparent communication? How do you make sure that people are clear about where they're going? How do they make sure they're clear around what they're doing really matters? And all those things I had no idea how to do. So I kind of had to stumble my way through it. But to bring it back to my partner, Josh, we would talk 
every morning for like, I remember the summer we were building that project. I was talking to him every morning at like 7.30. He would take some time away from Infonautics for half an hour. And we, that time, big cell phone and just go chat with him about business. I was just so out of my depth and running a company, but he was, he had done it several years earlier when he was just a little bit older than I was. And having that mentorship and advice early on and finding somebody that could help me think through how to be a competent, at least somewhat competent CEO, I I certainly wasn't highly competent, (laughs) was invaluable. I was very lucky to have that relationship with him. All right. So you guys sold to Microsoft that brought you to the Valley. Tell me about how things unfolded from there. I was at Microsoft a brief stint. Then I went to a company called Idea Lab, which this is the peak of the dot-com pinnacle. This is late 99, early 2000. We raised a billion dollars which was a lot of money, an unusual amount of money back then. <laughs> These days it's a little more common, but, and then the dot-com implosion happened. And we were kind of a derivative of a lot of the companies that we had underneath us. One of the people that worked there said that we got multiples on our company's multiples. And so it turns out when those multiples disappear, it's a hard place for us to be. So I left there, started another company afterwards with a group of folks at Atelme. We started working on a platform that was kind of similar to some of the ideas around Twilio. We're just about eight years too early. And it was during the real depth of the dot-com. So we had to merge with another company that actually had a real business. Uh, It was a company called LiveOps. The business was a call center business with people working from their home. And our team embraced that business. I ended up running the combined company for about four years. And that was a fun, that was my first real experience scaling something. Because Jump, when we sold it, was only about 25 people. But LiveOps, we grew from just a handful of us to about 300 people when I left and 100 million or so in revenue. And that was a lot more learning in the management ladder. And that was a a tremendous amount of funds. But in 2007, I left and that's what got me into investing because I started actually had enough capital at that point to start being an angel investor. And I started to invest in my friends' companies. I made one early investment in a company called Ironport, which was started by two friends of mine, Scott Bannister and Scott Weiss. And I was like, I'm never going to get this back. And sure enough, they sold to Cisco for almost a billion dollars. And it was like a fantastic return. I'm like, oh my gosh, you can make money doing this investing thing. I'm going to look into that a little more. (laughs) That's what got me down the road of becoming an angel investor. One thing led to another. Over a few years, I was angel investing. Then I started to work part-time at a firm called Founder Collective, a firm that was bi-coastal, mostly based on the East Coast, but also on the West Coast. Started by David Frankel and Eric Paley out of Boston. Fantastic people, fantastic investors. Got to do some really cool investments there. The most notable one being Uber, which was obviously a fantastic outcome. And that's what got me hooked was just that I loved the constant inspiration I got from founders and the ability to move from a player to being a coach, to take the lessons and the hard learned lessons to your point earlier, all the mistakes I'd made and start to help people in their early days of being a founder and finding product market fit and finding something that was going to be scalable and really work. I fell in love with that. I didn't know if I would. I actually really thought I would go and start more companies. But one thing led to another. And then so I decided to do it full-time. Founder Collective was really a part-time thing. And then starting in 2012, I went full-time at first round. And that's what brings me to today. I've still been doing it for nine years. I mean, it's wild. It seems like yesterday you joined and it's been a lot of fun to watch you continue to grow. And one thing that I hear a lot from your entrepreneurs is that you're a real sage. And so let's talk a little bit about the types of advice that you give. What are some of the things that you've gotten, the best feedback, criticism, advice you got, and how do you repackage that into things that are actionable for a new generation of entrepreneurs? Yeah, I'd say in the Valley today, there's really two types of investors and most fall in the first bucket. There's the cheerleaders and the people that'll give you the tough love. And I fall in the second bucket for sure. And I think the reason why a lot of people just default to the first bucket is we're all worried about 
being founder friendly and having a brand as being founder friendly. And if you have to give tough feedback to a founder, it can be perceived clearly as not being founder friendly. And there was an old way of doing that, which has been well written about and talked about, V10 a venture where people would, you know, fire founders or CEOs or they would be extremely aggressive with them. And that's not my style. I take the style of really uh, something that I think my partner Josh actually put a nice wording around, which is we always give our unvarnished opinion. But you know, if you're a CEO and you have to make a call that's different than what we think you should do, we also give you our unwavering support. We know how hard it is to be a CEO. Most of us have been CEOs before, and you're taking in all sorts of context and different information, and you're the closest to the customer, and you're closest to the market, you know what to do you're going to know best what the data is and you have to make the hard decision and the buck stops with you. So while we may disagree, well, we'll give you our full support. And that happens reasonably often where I will give advice to a founder and I'll tell them, listen, I think you're really going in the wrong direction because of X, Y, and Z. Here's the data I see. Here's what I think you should consider. And they'll decide to you know, continue on in that direction. And that's fine. I am fully supportive because it is sometimes the people that buck the convention or the words around them that really build the really impactful big companies. But for me, a lot of this came from one of my CEO coaches when I was running LiveOps, a guy named Jeff Eisenberg, who gave me a ton of tough love about all the things I was screwing up when I was running that company. He was fantastic. And I meet with him regularly, probably every week or two for a while when we were really scaling that company. And it was a lot of people-driven issues. As you get to scale, you find that most problems are people problems. <laughs> most problems are, how do you put together the right team on the, on the field to execute? And he was amazingly good at that. He'd run a public company called West Marine, which is a big retail company. And so he had a very back-to-basics approach to everything, but it really worked. It resonated for me. It wasn't high-tech hyperbole or, or a lot of the cool things to talk about OKRs. It was rooted in similar ideas. That was, I think, a big help for me. And it shaped a lot of my approach for how I work with founders and provide them feedback today and how we work as a firm. I'd say that broadly, Josh embodies the same thing as I mentioned. And I'd say we as a firm typically lean forward with unvarnished opinion, unwavering support approach. One of your founders said, I've got a board full of cheerleaders, but Bill's my personal trainer. So <laughs> I think that's a great description. And it sounds like it's rooted in your experience, which is awesome. So another thing that's interesting is you made the transition from angel investor to full-time firm investor. What are some of the pieces of advice you give to people who are moving from an operating role into an investing role? The first thing is think about whether or not you want this to be a business for you or not. You could just be an investing here and there using your network to get into really interesting deals and investing a small pool of capital, typically your own capital, or you could be a scout for a fund, or you could raise a small syndicate on AngelList, or you could just raise from friends and family, like you mentioned. And it could be three, four, five million, maybe 10 million. And you don't have to think that much about whether it's really a business of investing. It's more just making good investments. But if you want to be in the fund business, it's a different game. I would think hard about differentiation. Capital is a commodity now. Good founders with good ideas are making a decision about who should have their equity based on what value they bring. If they're good, they've got plenty of options for getting where they get the capital. It didn't used to be the case, but these days it certainly is. So think about how you're going to differentiate if you want to build a business and think about where you're really going to stand out amongst the sea of capital that's out there. And I think it could be simple things like, are you going to make faster decisions? That's simple way to start. A lot of people start there as a simple way to compete against bigger firms. 
Are you going to focus on specific areas like crypto or infrastructure tech? Are you going to be really great at things like customer introductions? Maybe you're going to help at hiring and talent acquisition. Whatever it is, I think that you need to pick your spot about where you're going to really stand out, how you're going to differentiate from everybody else and your service business at the end of the day. We're all in the service business, serving founders. They're our core customers. It's relatively easy to deliver value in the short term, but very different to do it at scale for a lot of customers over a long period of time. And you really got to think about if you're going to do that, how you're going to do it and where you're going to stand out. That's probably the biggest thing. The other thing you hear all the time, which is somewhat generic advice, but something I definitely had to learn in my early days of being an angel investor was you're not the operator anymore and you're betting on the founder. You're picking founders to operate. You're not making operational decisions yourself. So take yourself out of that role. Think about the chef versus the recipe. This is advice I got relatively early on in my career as an investor. Think about the team bet that you're making and whether they can execute this, not how you would execute this idea. A lot of times early on as an investor and a former operator become investor, you fall in love with the idea and you really need to think about the team that's executing that idea. And that's a harder transition to make because you sort of project yourself into that seat of operating. The two things I typically advise early on, and I would size your fund appropriately to, and think about your strategy appropriately to whatever you think will differentiate you in the market. So you joined FRC in 2012, which I mean, it seems like yesterday, but what drew you there? What led you to see it as a place where you could self-actualize and flourish? The attraction of the industry, which has attracted me, is it's probably the most fun job on the planet. It is incredibly fun to hear new ideas that could shape the world and shape the future day in and day out. And to do it across so many different areas. We are a journalist firm. We invest as journalists across a lot of different areas, whether it's consumer, enterprise, uh, fintech, hardware, and so on. So I hear ideas across a wide range of, of areas. And it is incredibly fun to do that, to pivot on the one end to some cool climate tech company to a very interesting, compelling SaaS company is a lot of fun. First round for me had at the early stage of its development as a firm built, I think, one of the strongest brands in seed. I love seed investing because it is the closest to what I did as a founder. Those early days of figuring out product market fit, figuring out your early go-to-market motion, figuring out your pricing model and your business model, all the areas that you're going to innovate for the business and what's really going to give you the flywheel. That's when it all comes together is during that seed round. And I love that journey. And so for me, first round was incredibly attractive for those reasons. And of course, to work with my friend, Josh Koppelman, and also at the time, Howard Morgan and Chris Fralick and Rob Hayes and the rest of the firm, I was just very attracted to the team that was on the ground. Those are some big reasons. The other thing is I think First round approached the business as a startup itself. I used to ask Josh, just as a friend, I'd rib him at various conferences and say, hey, you know, when are you going to start another company? Because I've always thought of you as a founder. He's like, first round is my startup. He's always thought about it that way and set a culture early on of doing things that way, which uh, permeates how we operate today, which is what makes it, I think, not only the most fun job is, is in venture, but it is the most fun job in venture because first round for me scratches two itches. One is I love investing, advising, and working with great founders and hearing these great ideas all day. But also it is incredibly fun innovating and creating an innovative brand and practice at first round on an ongoing basis. That is very rare to find a set of like-minded people that are so aligned to build a better venture product in the market. That's what the firm has always been about. So we're always thinking about bottoms up, how can we serve our customer better, our customer or founders? There's two ways we primarily do that, refining our internal processes and, and then 
to make better decisions faster and then experimenting constantly with new ideas. And to be both an entrepreneur at the firm and coming up with new ideas, as well as an investor, is just the combination of two things I love. I had a professor in business school who had been a virologist, and he always said people are themselves like viruses and they're culture carriers, and they infect the organism they append to, and they themselves are infected and change and evolve. So in the time you've been at First Round, how have you infected First Round and changed it, and how has First Round infected you? On the entrepreneur side, I spent a good amount of my time working closely with my partners, especially Brett Burson, who heads our internal team. Uh, new products, services, and ideas. And we have this intense bottoms-up orientation for the customer, and we're always looking for opportunities to build new and exciting things for them that will help them in ways that just haven't been done before. Our core operating model, which I've helped with along with Brett and myself and Josh and the other partners have all been involved with this, is very different than other venture firms. I think that if a founder walked into most venture firms, I think they would probably fire half the team from an operating standpoint, because it is not the thing that is to traditionally driven returns is building great services and delivering great quality of service to founders. It's mostly been about picking and getting access to great deals. But we believe that the market's changed and the expectations in the market have changed and they continue to change. And so we have a fundamentally different operating model. We have an operating team. Most teams inside of firms are really beholden to the GPs and they work at the behest of GPs. And anytime the GPs say, go do this, they go jump on that. And it ends up with this very disorganized set of things that happen, whether it's jumping on the latest deal or trying to do some initiative that maybe helps with marketing or branding. And we have a a different model, which is our, our partnership acts like a board of directors for our operating team. And we've released a very much a board operating cadence with them that we meet every four months and they present an operating plan to us. All the senior level, senior members of the team will go through what their objectives were, what they accomplished over the time. They propose budgets, they review what they did, and they're really operating on behalf of our customers and building on behalf of our customers in a way that's independent of the whims of the GP or the partners at any given time. And so they're constantly able to deliver for founders and build and scale services and products that make for a better experience. We think ultimately a much better venture product out there. So there's lots of examples of this. We're working on some really cool new things right now. One example is what we call Recruiter Track. I'll just talk about new stuff because it's, it's fun to talk about new stuff. But <laughs> Recruiter Track is, uh, we noticed that the big challenge in the market today is getting great people in your company. It's always a talent war. And it starts often for our founders with getting great recruiter in the door to go and, and help them scale up their team. It's very hard to find a good recruiter. So what, what we've realized by hiring some recruiters ourselves and starting to really learn the best practices is that you can hire people and train them. So what we're doing is we're creating a training program for anybody. This is actually a great opportunity for people that want to break into the tech industry, who, people that are smart and motivated and ambitious to basically train people on how to be a great tech recruiter. It's a free program. People can sign up. We've got tons of people that have applied. We're launching the first cohort soon. And our goal with this is to place several recruiters that come out of the program into our companies and to have them be those early recruiters that really help with building up the teams and helping with the early transition from founder-led recruiting to now we have an internal recruiting function. And this type of thing that we, we love to do, we believe it can scale. It also is a way that we give back to the community by helping people learn these new skills. We saw this other challenge, which is CEOs often don't get 
a review themselves in the early stage company. When you're a bigger company, when you're running a, a later stage company, like when I was on the board of Looker, or when I was running LiveOps or any of these companies where you have hundreds of people, someone on the board will typically perform a review of the CEO and give them feedback and, and do things like 360s. But that doesn't happen in the early days. And it actually could be incredibly valuable for an early stage CEO to know that. So we developed a service. We've worked with our CEOs to do 360 reviews as a service for our founders to a 15 person company, which is a typical seed stage company once they've started to scale up. And it's incredibly valuable for CEOs to get this valued 360 review that they otherwise don't get. And they just don't get the feedback. How important is it in the early days of the company building to learn how you are and how you can be a better CEO? It has a tremendous down the line impacts. So those are just two recent examples, but we're constantly thinking about ideas that help our founders and help build better products for them. And the operating team is freed up to go deliver and not be pulled from left to right by what we individually want to do as partners on any given day. I love that intention and, and clarity of vision and, and really the stage at which you guys invest. There's a unique opportunity to help these startups set their DNA and get them off on the greatest trajectory. Speaking of recruiting, you guys have been recruiting in new partners. Let's talk a little bit about that. Some amazing folks have joined the team. Can you talk about how you guys find and vet new partner candidates and how you guys think about culture? Yeah, I'd say that we've gotten very intentional about this. It, in an interesting way, it actually flowed from some of our thinking about how to run the firm better in terms of our investing product. Or how do we make better decisions as investors first when a company comes in to present how do we make sure that we as a team are getting the best ideas around the table and really pulling that business apart and trying to get to the truth as well as we can? And so there's a number of things that we do there. We have a very, very structured post-meeting review process. When a founder leaves the room, we don't talk. So they come and pitch typically for an hour. We ask questions. It's relatively conversational type of uh, approach when, we, when, they're, when they're pitching the partnership. And then we, we literally just write for about 15 minutes. We have this structured form that we've built in Airtable that builds out a profile of the company. We talk, there's sections on product, market, and team, positives, negatives, narrative that you write for each. There's a whole bunch of different rankings you do on each of the different sections. And then we all sit and read it. And then we have a discussion. And it's usually it's a, it's a moderated discussion by one of the members of the team. And the moderator's job is to pull out the areas of dispersion and to really find in the conversation where people at disagreement. And the reason we do it this way is we found that you would get on this train of like the loudest voice in the room would dominate the conversation. And you wouldn't get those long tail voices that tended to be, or the quieter voices that tended to have some pretty interesting ideas around the business. And we weren't getting the benefit of that. We believe this has allowed us to make much better investment decisions. We've taken a similar approach to partner hiring. We used to do it, I think how a lot of firms do it, which is you go through the motions of like, okay, who do you know in the marketplace and who are the people in our broader ecosystem that we like, and then start to have informal conversations with them. And then they meet a bunch of the different partners. Maybe you go to a couple dinners, you have a bunch of conversations, and then you're like, okay, you're hired. We don't think that's the way to build a really strong partnership. It's certainly not a repeatable process. It's subject to the same problems that our early investing process was focused on. When we just had conversations, the person that advocated the hardest could drive the conversation to hire a new partner in one direction. That's the loudest voice in the room problem or the person with the clearest or most articulated opinion. 
So we've refined it. And we started this last summer. And the reason that I think is important is it was during a lot of things that happened around Black Lives Matter and with George Floyd and a number of the other situations. And it wasn't a hard requirement, but certainly we'd like to diversify the partnership with putting a much higher import on it as we were looking at what are important things for a new hire. We read this post by Brian Dixon over at Cape Port Capital. And it was called, So You Want to Fund Black Founders. And his main point in the post was, you're being unintentionally exclusionary by having this clubby type of hiring that everyone does by going to their cohorts and having these conversations and these dinners and so on. So we started at the top of the funnel. We posted publicly and rethought the whole process. We said, we're hiring a new partner. We put out a post. We had a lot of people apply, over a thousand people apply for the job. We looked at every single one of them. We got a very good sense as people moved through the funnel of what we wanted. And we had a very structured process as people moved through the funnel. So it was an incredible learning experience, but we added the structure and the discipline that we had from our investing world and the things that we look for at the various stages of the funnel there into our partner hiring process. And we think works extremely well. We've most recently hired Mecca Asonye, who's fantastic and a great member of our team. He was the first to go through that process. We couldn't be more thrilled with having him on the team with how the, how the whole process worked. And one of the challenges there, to be honest, is he's fantastic. He's an operator. He has this experience from Stripe and Mixpanel. In terms of early stage sales, he's fantastic, which we think is incredibly important to help with early stage founders with how do they go to market. But we also had this question of how do you hire somebody that hasn't done the job before? He has not been an investor before. It's like, would you hire a senior executive for a company that has not done the job before? <laughs> you probably wouldn't. Or how do you do that? We had to invent a process around that as well. And that was a lot of fun to do. That's awesome. And I'm so delighted that he's on the team. And it's a real challenge in this business. So much of this kind of unintentional social reproduction, and it leads to groupthink and pattern following. Let's pivot a little bit because First Round was founded on the idea that the firm could turn venture capital on its head. Venture capital is doing a perfectly good job turning itself on its head nowadays. And the cadence is just out of control. How are you guys adapting to the cadence that we see in the market today? Yeah, it's fascinating to watch and be a participant. And I'd say the first thing is, you know, listen, we're all students of technology and markets. And if you don't adapt and respond to the changes of the market, we think you really can get run over by them. So what that means today is founders want capital faster and at better terms for them typically. And you could argue that's always been the case, but now there's a market to support it. And you also have to figure out, I think when you're playing this game, what you're uniquely great at or positioned to execute exceptionally well. And so we have stuck to our knitting instead of going to become a multi-stage firm, which has happened to some of our colleagues and other firms have decided to become not just a seed firm, but an A firm and a B firm, and, and maybe even later than that, we've decided to stick to early stage. It's what we'd love to do. And it's what we believe we can deliver the best products and services around for our founders. But even there, early stage has changed. It used to be that when we wrote a 500K check to 750K check, we could buy 10 to 15% of the company when we were early in the life of first round. That is no longer the case. That is not the market price, clearing price for a seed round today. The seed rounds are much higher value and our average initial investment is about $3 million these days. So we've had to move with the market. We're still the same stage, however. It's still typically a few founders with an early product and an insight. They have insight around product, they have insight around distribution or business model or all three. But that's typically what we're looking at. 
And it's just that they can raise a lot more capital than they used to be able to at that stage. We've increased our fund sizes over time to be able to accommodate that and still not change the core of our business. We've also increased our cadence. We have two partner meetings a week now rather than one. We used to have just one on Thursdays. Now we have one on Monday and one on Thursdays. And so you're never more than 72 hours from getting in front of the whole partnership. And we have a process for meeting outside that too. We do pitches on the weekends sometimes if we need to. We we will move as fast as needed to get in front of the whole team to get in front of an opportunity. For us, it's not a lottery ticket. This is not just taking a lot of shots on goal and and then doubling down on the ones that work. This capital really means something to us. We are taking a big bet. We've sized our funds to be relatively small to a lot of venture funds today. We care about this capital deeply. And each of us only has so many, it has a relatively limited number of companies we work with actively during that seed journey. So we care deeply about it. And we're clear about that from an ownership model and clear about that with founders in terms of what they can expect from us. And we think we deliver on that in the marketplace. And we certainly aspire to continue delivering on that in the marketplace. We think other firms that have come into the market have not adopted their operating model to service founders at a seed stage any differently than they would later on. And yet they're still using a, a series A type of mentality or or series B type of mentality when funding them. So we think that the net of it is if you don't change the operating model, you're just providing capital. It's a decision for founders whether they want that or they want an investor that is really there with them and has built a set of products and services just for their stage, just to help them with the early steps of building the business. And so that's been our strategy is to stick to our knitting, move with the market. We pay higher prices today than we used to. We write bigger checks than we used to. And that's just the forces of capitalism working to create a different market for funding, but still stick to our core, what we think we do very well. And generally speaking, we think it works in terms of the competitive rounds that we see and what we're able to win in the marketplace. One question I had about Tradecraft, another VC I know was lamenting the fact that because all of these startup founders and senior management types were now managing their own money. He was finding it more challenging to actually do things like reference check because you know he was actually then talking to somebody who then might try to snipe the deal out from under him. Has the new environment of every doctor treating the patient in the bed next to them, <laughs> has that changed your tradecraft at all? It's definitely created a unique challenge that I did not foresee. Because not only do people have their own funds, they're also scouts. You may not know they're a scout. They may be investing their own capital. You see these very odd dynamics where you're calling our references and then people are like, wait a second, I didn't know that they were fundraising. I should call them. (laughs) Typically in the industry, there's an unspoken rule that you don't scoop other people's deals if you learn about it from them. And obviously, if it's a small investor like an angel that we're doing a reference check on founder with, we'll invite them in. We'd love to have them in alongside us in the round if they want to put some money to work. If they're part of a larger fund, typically we won't be calling them because we do not want to highlight the deal for them. But usually it's someone who is an operator who's worked with them. They may have been at Google or Facebook or somewhere like that. And they might have a small scout check that they can write or they want to write a personal check. And that's totally fine with us. We support that. We think that's great. And certainly they're doing us a favor by providing us a reference. And it's a great reference if they want to invest. And that's a great sign. (laughs) (laughs) That is a great sign. You know, you've talked a lot about dusty industries. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you mean by that and how you look for investments in those types of spots. Yeah, I mean, dusty industries are typically these ones that were not early to the digital revolution in some way. So they tend to operate the same way today as they did 20 years ago or 30 years ago. It's a new founder with a new model that comes to the market and says, wait, there's a better way to do this. Typically, what I look for there 
is you're looking for a founder who's really gone deep in understanding the problem. It's one of the things that I look for in any founder that I invest in, but particularly for ones going after the dusty industries, because there's often a lot of dynamics that are just not completely obvious from a surface level look at it. And it requires you to go in and understand it. So Ryan Peterson, who started Flexport, very dusty industry. I mean, these businesses that have been doing freight forwarding, which is international shipping, have been around for hundreds of years, some of them. I mean, these Greek companies have been around forever. He actually did two businesses prior to Flexport, where he really went deep in understanding all of the nuances of international logistics, import and export. How does it work? How do you move things between countries? What are the different chains of custody? What's the complexity? What's the paperwork? How does the bill of lading work? All that. And then when he started Flexport, he had these insights around, they were actually relatively small from the outside. It looked like relatively small product innovations, but they were really huge for the customer. And the biggest one for him, at least initially, was tracking of where a shipment was. So you could get the tracking of like a FedEx type of level of tracking for freight on the ocean, which was not previously possible. And so it was taking these bills of lading and manually entering them through a team that I think was in the Philippines at one point that did that. That was sort of initial product insight. And then that was enough. Plus, I think he picked the right spot to start. He really focused on distribution within the tech forward companies and then moved out from there. So a lot of these tech forward leading companies that were starting to explode at the time became customers of his and then went out from there. So often you'd see three types of innovations, product, distribution, and business model. And it's usually the people that attack the dusty industries have a little nuance on each. And it's not necessarily huge changes, but the combination of them is actually really transformative for the industry because the incumbents can't adapt very well. They don't have the product insights or the ability to deliver great products. They can't change the pricing such that they can really compete against this new up-and-comer. They don't have a distribution advantage. And so those are the things that I look for and then typically make those companies really work. You got to look for somewhat small tweaks that end up making a huge difference. One question I had was LiveOps was a pretty distributed company. And so you've got some experience with distributed companies before distributed companies were cool. But now with this kind of COVID scattering, you know, we've got everything from virtual companies to companies you know, moving to different geographies, kind of whole cloth. How do you think that plays out over the coming few years And for those companies that either do go all remote or hybrid, do you have any advice to them how they keep culture consistent and how they keep operating at peak performance? A lot of people are asking where this is all going. I get get asked this all the time by founders, by other investors. And of course, we don't know precisely, but I would say the industry is largely dictated by two forces, founder preferences and talent preferences. Both of them will come together and tell us what's important to them. And that will shape the future of businesses, whether they're fully distributed, partially distributed into sort of pods of people all around in small offices, or we come back to more of a centralized structure where people in an office together. The thinking is totally different today. What's possible is very different today than what I think people were thinking back in 2019 pre-COVID. And I think we all have had experience with remote work that has transformed how we think about where we work. I'd also say broadly, most talent, I think, wants more flexibility in where they live and how they work. So there's a major force there. And if you think about the talent war that's going on, I'd say that there's certainly in a lot of roles, engineering roles, data science roles, and so on, which are very competitive. There's going to be a tremendous amount of pressure. We're seeing that big companies like Apple recently had this happen in the news about how a lot of their employees wanted to push towards a more remote friendly culture versus coming back in the office. Because people know that works, that will continue with one exception on the talent side, which is the people right out of school. I think when you're coming right out of school, 
in your first job, it's an opportunity for you to build a new social network. And it's really hard to do that remotely. And I have not found a good way to do that. But the best practices I have seen to really build culture is most teams that I've seen are moving to three times a year offsite where you get the whole team together. You basically take what would have been your real estate budget and you put it into nice offsites for the team to come together and have a combination of work time and some get to know you social time. I see a lot of teams also doing pairing or forced pairing in the virtual office, if you would, where you're paired with various people to do projects, trying to avoid the individual work where you're totally disconnected. You're having a lot more of those. Interestingly, I don't know if you've you've seen this, Chris, but I think that the partially distributed model is actually harder than the fully distributed model for a lot of the individuals because being the one that's on the TV, on the screen, and having everyone else in a, in a conference room feels very disconnected versus if everyone's completely remote, it's a little bit easier. I don't see a lot of talent banging down the door to get back to the office five days a week in San Francisco. I don't see that likely returning to the same default mode anytime soon. And I think that we're going to have more distributed models and we'll learn a lot of the best practices over the coming years to make that work. It's funny though, capital preferences used to world the day. Remember when that happened? And we don't even talk about that anymore. It used to be the venture capitalists didn't want to travel more than 30 minutes for a board meeting. And that's completely irrelevant. Let's go to a little bit of a speed round here to finish up. I know you're a bit of a productivity fiend. What's your latest work hack and your latest personal life hack? My latest work hack is during COVID, I realized I was sitting down too much in front of my computer and just going from Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting or paging through email after email. And so I'll do these what I call email walks. Well, I'll literally just get on my cell phone with my assistant and process the inbox with her going through it and responding to things. I'll say, do this or do this or respond with this while I'm out walking in nature. And that just, I found completely changed my mood. So it's a bit of a personal hack and it's a bit of a work hack because it lifted my mood so much after being, you know, it's a bit draining as we all know from the Zoom fatigue that happens from being back to back all the time. And this is also sort of crosses, I think both is I, Learned from Rahul at Superhuman, where I'm an early investor and board member, the power of keyboard shortcuts. And I've tried to keyboard shortcut my whole experience on the computer, which is I found this thing called Vimium, which is a uh, browser extension that allows you to keyboard control every website. I have another piece of software called Alfred, which runs on the Mac, which allows me to trigger all sorts of scripts I've written and other things to make my computer kind of as fully automated as I can. And so I found that these little things you do every day, if you could just trigger them with with a keyboard command, it's amazing how much faster you can be in processing and getting things done. Let me ask this, what are you most proud of? The challenge of this world we live in today is there's so much happening. There's so much coming at you that you have less time to do deep work because especially as a venture capitalist, you've got just a barrage of deals showing up and different needs from existing investments. And so I'm most proud of the the times when I can really go deep on a product or project and spend a tremendous amount of time to build something that, that I think is really fun and borderline sort of magical in some way. It could be something in my personal life. It could be like a trip and planning a really amazing trip and just take, turning it up to 11 and just spending an inordinate amount of time on it. And, or it could be, um, it could be something on, on the work front where I really have time to do a fantastic amount of work on one thing. It doesn't happen as often as I would like. It's one of the, the downsides of my day job. There's just too much coming at you. It's like a good job for someone who has ADD. <laughs> but I think it was uh, Ann and Teller that said, uh, sometimes magic is someone spending more time on something than anyone would reasonably expect. And I think those are the things I'm most proud of when I have those moments. Outside of work, what are your favorite hobbies? I love to snowboard. I fell in love with snowboarding 
several years ago in Tahoe. And I actually, during COVID, got the opportunity to live in Tahoe for a year. One of the best experiences is going out for a couple hours in the morning or an hour in the morning, getting the first chair and enjoying the snow. I did not grow up with board sports as a kid. I grew up with East Coast sports, soccer and running and things like that. And I just love it. My wife is a surfer, so really it was easy for her to learn. It was very hard for me to learn how to snowboard, but I do love it. What's the thing that you learned from your parents that has stayed with you and continues to inspire you and guide you? I think from my mom, I learned the value of persistence. She was um, an ultra marathoner and would run these crazy 50 or 100 mile races. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone run in one of these races, but it's really hard on your body. Your feet get all beat up and bloody. It's just, it's a hard thing. And I would go with her on a lot of these races and watch her do this and just push through the personal pain and the physical pain and just be able to focus on this end results. And sometimes it was just running around a track for 24 hours, which is just incredibly difficult mentally. <laughs> and, uh, but I watched the incredible joy that she had when she was done and the experience that, you know, would have brought to her mentally and just the joy we all had for her and her accomplishments. And that was just incredibly inspiring to me. And so I learned watching her go through that and push through that. And she was mostly in her forties. So she was running those races, she taught me a tremendous lesson in persistence. I want to thank you so much for being on today. This has been really awesome and illuminating. Thanks, Chris. It's been great being on. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time. Thank you.